Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Are we living in an age of walls? Talk of walls is, of course, all around us, from heated political rhetoric about building a wall on America's southernmost border to more amorphous references to the walls of the psyche or firewalls blocking the flow of digital data. My colleague Laura Forster has been exploring walls, their history, and their meanings with the historian Paul Betts. Their fascinating and freewheeling conversation forms the entirety of today's podcast. Here's Laura. So, hello. In, in 2019, we conceived of a, a podcast on the history of walls, both real physical walls and metaphorical psychological walls, and how both have been used at critical moments in history. 2019 was the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. It was the year Brexit and the question of Britain's borders dominated British parliamentary politics. And it was also the year that Donald Trump declared a national emergency at the southern border of the United States and ordered the diversion of billions of dollars of funds to build the wall that had been at the heart of his 2016 election campaign. So with industrial action, global pandemic and good old fashioned conflicting schedules, our podcast got somewhat delayed But actually, in many ways, 2020 presents novel uh, and until recently, perhaps inconceivable ways in which walls, borders and boundaries, both national and very personal, can affect our lives. And so it's perhaps an even more pertinent moment to discuss this history. So here we are finally sitting down uh, in different places via Zoom with Paul Betts. Uh, Paul Betts is a professor of modern European history at St. Anthony's College, Oxford. His research focuses on modern European cultural history in general in 20th century German history in particular. Uh, his most recent book, Walls, Private Life in the German Democratic Republic, was published with Oxford University Press in 2012 and was awarded the Frankel Prize in Contemporary History by the Wiener Library. Walls also features in Paul's 2019 past and present article on the legacies of the dismantling of the Berlin Wall and thinking about that on the 30th anniversary. So Paul, welcome. Uh, and briefly, before we kind of get to the meat of our discussions, I thought maybe just uh, in, in a few sentences, you could you know, talk about what walls have meant in your work. And perhaps would you say that given the country's shifting boundaries and dividing lines, that a historian of modern Germany must, by default, be a historian of borders? Great. Thank you very much. And I'm uh, really pleased to take part in this uh, podcast. And thank you, Laura, for the invitation. As you said, the introduction, I've been working on walls in various ways, I think, for quite a while. The book Within Walls on the GDR was really an effort to think about the history of the private sphere itself, that uh, how people live within walls, not just the walls of the country, but within the walls of the home and how people kind of build an idea of a private sphere as a kind of relationship between state and citizen and how that's constantly being negotiated, renegotiated as the kind of social contract between state and citizens. That was in a sense, a kind of an experimental book to think about something that many people thought didn't exist, which is kind of private life under communism. And it, but I think you're right, it gives us a chance to think a little, little bit more broadly about the role um, of walls. And again, as you said, metaphorical walls, political military walls, and also the walls of the home, the walls between kind of self and society that's been thrown up recently by uh, both the global uh, civil rights movement and the pandemic. Um, we live, I think, as you said, the onset, a kind of 
it's kind of feverish construction of political walls recently. Um, you alluded to the kind of high media events of, uh, of Donald Trump's uh, Mexican-American, or at least the, the, the wall on the Mexican-American border, but we also think of the, ball, the walls between India and Pakistan to India and Bangladesh, obviously Israel and, uh, and the uh, Palestinian territories, and of course walls figure very prominently in the whole uh, Brexit discussion, the Anglo-Irish wall, which interestingly enough was not really taken seriously by, uh, by British politicians until the issue became one of important mm -hmm. political gravity. And of course the issue about Schengen, uh, but if the real growth industry in terms of wall construction has been Eastern and Southeastern Europe. We have some 1300 kilometers of new wall construction since 2000. So I, I guess what I'm arguing is we live in a world of a kind of new iron curtains and it's really in a sense trying to get a sense of, of of how that came about and what that might mean. Great, yeah, no, I mean, precisely, it's a, an excellent introduction because you've really touched on this idea of a kind of age of walls. Um, and that's something we've been hearing about recently in the last years, particularly I'd come across it in a, a book by Tim Marshall. Um, and he talks about how the fall of the Berlin Wall was actually in some ways the exception rather than the rule. And that instead actually we're seeing walls being built along borders everywhere. Um, as you just mentioned, you know, the. Uh, the amount of kind of physical constructions of walls has increased dramatically since 2000. I think Marshall cites that, you know, from almost zero at the end of World War II to around 70 sort of new walls, as it were, today. And of course, these divides continue to steer geopolitics and national identities. So in, in this book, Tim Marshall, I don't know if you've come across it, The Age of Walls, How Barriers Between Nations Are Changing Our World. He argues that we're living through a new age of isolationism and economic nationalism and one that protects, bolsters, and maintains itself via walls. So as we've already mentioned, of course, Trump's walls, Britain's island mentality, the European refugee crisis, all form part of this kind of wall age. But it's also visible um, in other, perhaps less physical manifestations. For example, you know, China's Great Firewall, um, which protects communist China from Western culture through the stringent reg regulation of domestic internet access. And, and, and as you've just mentioned, you know, across the world, we're seeing walls kind of countries guarding themselves against immigrants, terrorism, currency issues, uh, and places like South Africa that have heavily gated private communities. So thinking, as you said, about sort of more kind of the walls of the home and, and these kind of personal walls. But obviously, you know, in some ways, you know, we talk about an age of walls, but this also isn't new, obviously. There's always been walls, you know, borders and divisions, and the Great Wall of China, Hadrian's Wall, so I suppose, Paul, the, this question of the age of walls is, you know, what do you make of that characterization? Is now really an age of walls or are we just seeing something that, that has existed throughout sort of human history in the way in which we create borders and boundaries? Or is there something very specific about this moment, do you think? Um, I think you're right. I mean, uh, wall construction certainly nothing new. You talked about the Great Wall of China, Hadrian's Wall. What's interesting is that walls often don't last very long. Um, in both cases, Hadrian's Wall and the Great Wall of China, they become important tourist sites, mm -hmm. uh, no longer having played their, essentially the military function. So part of the kind of history of wall constructions about how walls change, not just physically, but kind of culturally, symbolically as uh, marking borders or become kind of um, milestones of uh, political identity. So that's nothing new, but I do think for a, let's say for a 20th century history and particularly the history of the Cold War, we, the Cold War was tied up with images of division and wall construction um, with you know, divided countries like Korea and Germany. And of course uh, the most uh, telegenic kind of symbolic 
symbol of the Cold War being the Berlin Wall itself and just the importance for American politicians. Think of John F. Kennedy going to uh, West Berlin in 1963, this famous, you know, Ich bin ein Berliner speech. And then, of course, Reagan uh, following up in 1987 at the Brandenburg Gate, telling you know, Gorbachev to tear down this wall, this idea that the U.S. then stood for uh, the kind of dismantling of walls and uh, divisions in the name of kind of uh, liberal exchanges, free movement of people, et cetera. And that became a particular important Cold War self-image, I think, for the West in terms of what they stood for as opposed to the communist East. What's interesting is that with the dismantling of the Berlin Wall uh, in 89, and then of course German relocation 1990, is that we now live in a kind of period where there's been a huge amount of blowback against that particular openness, or in a sense, the cosmopolitan liberal values of 1989. Some argue this has moved from the revolution of 1989 to the kind of counter-revolutions mm-hmm. of, uh, of recent years, symbolized by people like Viktor Orban and the Kaczynskis in Poland. This is a kind of retreat against those values, where open borders were seen as symbols of, of new values and a new Europe. Those open borders are now symbols of political insecurity and risk and anxiety for many people kind of tied to a a kind of double pincer movement. We have kind of out migration of Eastern Europeans, let's say to other countries, including Britain, and then very small numbers of people coming in refugees into the countries, which uh, seems to then generate enormous amount of anxiety about the loss of identity for these particular countries. So you're certainly right that the construction of walls is a very, very old story, but I think the cold War took on a particular ideological importance about the construction of walls as being something that the West stood against. So, you know, the kind of euphoria of 1989 and that particular generation. Now we're kind of witnessing an effort to undo those particular uh, kind of values in the name of, of constructing walls against refugees, against other people. This, in a sense, it's a kind of against the backdrop of a pessimism of assimilation of multiculturalism, then again, in the name of for many, a kind of comeback of xenophobic nationalism. So that's, in a sense, been a very, very key marker of European politics in the last, but not just, of course, you also see the same happening across the world, India, the United States, in this country, and many other places in terms of being a kind of uh, fantasy of a kind of mono-ethnic cultural identity. Great. Yeah, I think that's really, um, it really touched on there, I suppose, that this question of if this is an age of walls, then how did it happen? And I think, you know, obviously you've um, written a lot most recently in your past and present article last year about the, the legacies of, of 89 and how important that is in understanding how we've got to, as you just said, this this kind of new situation of kind of closing off from that supposed openness of 89. And what's interesting, I think, as you say in this, in your, in your past and present article, is that actually there's the, the idea of 89 symbolizing this kind of openness, open borders, uh, cosmopolitanism is already in some ways a slightly misleading uh, interpretation because 89 was not just about liberation and the destruction of walls, but I think you say, you know, viewed more broadly, violent nationalism, xenophobia and barbed wire borders are just as much the legacy of 89 as wall removal and free movement and cosmopolitanism. So in some ways, you know, as you talk about this kind of counter-revolution against the openness of 89, kind of forces us to question what 89 meant at the time itself. So I suppose, yeah, I'd like to sort of ask you a bit more about that, about how you think our understandings of the legacies of 89 or the sort of popular image of 89 symbolizing the end of the Cold War, a new, a new world, 
whether you think that that's always been kind of mythologized and perhaps really what we need to do and, and as you've tried to do is, is to interrogate what it meant at the time and since and, and perhaps a, a better understanding about that might lead us to to some of the answers about how we've got to the rise of this more inward-looking populist mono-ethnic situation that, we, that we're, we're sort of in today with this age of walls i suppose yes that's right i mean the piece was written as a way of challenging what has become a kind of story of Western triumphalism mm -hmm. that, this, that 1989 was about the victory of liberalism over communism, was about the kind of celebration of a core set of Western values, et cetera. And it just bothered me because you actually look at what, you know, you look at the placards, you look in, in, the, name, in the name of what particular causes uh, brought people in the streets in 1989 across Central Europe. Um, with Germany, the situation of, let's say, nationalism came later. Of course, that seems that kind of inevitable train toward reunification, but that was really not the case for a lot of people in 1989. It was about uh, the voice of the people, it was about democracy, it was about citizenship, it was about what we often associate with Thatcher, the idea of a democratic deficit, uh, the mm -hmm. fact that the, um, that the people's democracy was really not so much about the people, and it was really about the idea of uh, reorganizing political community, often with the idea of reforming communism. Again, depending on where you lived, Poland, for example, is quite clear on there was an effort to discard the whole communist experiment. Places like East Germany were more interested, uh, at least many people were, in a kind of reform story. But the piece was written in a way of, of trying to, to uh, return back to the complexity of the period, of the mm -hmm. whole range of causes and a range of different uh, issues, fears, anxieties about not just toppling these regimes, but what would happen in its place. And I also wanted to point to in a sense, this idea of xenophobic nationalism, what we think of today as being a kind of anti-89, as saying that's not really all that true. There was a lot of xenophobic nationalism already there in 89. I was, you know, I called attention to this, you know, the well-known story of the Bulgarian government's expulsion of some mm -hmm. 300,000 Turks in the name of non-assimilation in the summer of 1989. Then of course the neo-Nazi activities in Germany, 1990, 1991, mm -hmm. again, not just in East Germany, but also in the West, suggesting oh, this is a kind of Pandora's box story in which a lot of things then were on the table, different sort of political visions, different kind of ideological blueprints. And just to say that these people were fighting in the name of joining the West above all is just not true. There were a whole range of things in which uh, these citizens were interested in essentially reshaping their own political communities with very, very different uh, ideas and uh, programs in mind. We, we know in a sense Act 5 in terms of what ended up happening, but that was not to say that that was inevitable or even desirable for lots of people. There were a number of losers in 1989, a lot of uh, more radical groups, uh, socialists, a lot of feminists that felt their voices were suppressed. So it's in a sense trying to return back to the kind of rich complexity of that period before it became essentially rewritten as a story of liberalism triumphant. That's an interesting point you brought up there that it wasn't obviously there's any kind of change in regime or a global shift in kind of uh, power dynamics is, is not just uh, about kind of liberation or the sort of hope of after the Cold War or whatever, but also there's a lot of fear and uncertainty and then the, the sort of power struggles that ensue. So I think it'd be interesting to kind of think about walls more generally, perhaps, as these symbols, either their destruction or their construction as symbols of, of fear and power. Obviously, in some ways, the most obvious 
recent example is, is, is thinking about Trump and, and during his presidential campaign in 2016, um, he said repeatedly and very explicitly, in this race for the White House, I am the law and order candidate. And, and his border war was in many ways a kind of symbol of his hardline commitment to law and order and keeping the bad out and the good in, in order to protect America. And throughout this, of course, Trump played on fear, you know, fear of immigrants taking American jobs and threatening American citizens and fear of lawlessness and un-American sentiment, etc. And, and, and perhaps more generally, a fear of a kind of increasingly globalized world undermining Americans, America's position in that global order. So, you know, in that way, the Trump's wall um, was a sort of way of exercising American power. But in reality, of course, it sort of reeked of insecurity more than anything, in, in a sense. And similarly, in the, in the Brexit campaign, you know, you see these fears being stoked and the language of security and sovereignty being deployed fears of mass migration, refugees, and all these, this sort of fear sort of used to bolster and resurrect an image of a uniquely powerful and independent Great Britain. So I'd like to ask you a bit about that. And, you know, you've said previously that the, the refugee crisis in some ways transformed issues about rights and economics into kind of a security discourse. And I think this, this idea of fear and power and how um, the, the idea of like bolstering states, but also identities, um, that could be ethnic identities, political identities. So yeah, I'd like to ask really whether you think walls are always about fear and power. Is it always exercising a type of power in fear of something else? That, I think that's right. It's a good question. I mean, walls are about, of course, inclusion and exclusion. They are about fear and power. But, you know, for all this bluster, Trump, of course, is not new to this story. I mean, if you look, for example, George Bush Jr. looking at in the wake of the 9-11, I mean, he passed something called the Secure Defense Act, which was the idea of bolstering security on the Mexican border in, in the name of counterterrorism. Obama also doubled wall construction during his regime and it stepped up deportations of you know, subversive nationals, etc. And Trump, in a sense, has taken that to a higher level. But this idea that, um, that the, especially the Mexican-American uh, border was one in which it becomes a kind of projection screen of American anxieties is an old one. I mean, I happen to have grown up in Phoenix, Arizona, which is one of the border states, and it's become Trump's favorite state for giving his most uh, incendiary speeches about border control, because it's generally been a very uh, red state or Barry Goldwater, former presidential candidate from the 60s, was from Arizona. So I kind of grew up with this with this story. I mean, again, it's a state that uh, was then at least 30, 40 percent uh, Hispanic. It's probably more than that now, but a constant anxiety among the kind of ang so-called Anglo community about the mixing or the dilution of, uh, of, of cultural identity, driving forward a policy of non-integration. So this is actually quite an old story from the, the wake of the Mexican-American War in the mid-19th century. And then in that region, the Gadsden Purchase and this, uh, this kind of Anglo, or at least uh, white fantasies about what in fact is happening. And you know, their attitude toward uh, people who've been there much longer than they had, justifying border construction as a kind of symbol of political community and regional identity. But I just want to say one thing, which is, I think, an important point. When we think about wall construction, most of the time it's discussed in terms of the defense of a nation state, a nation state mm -hmm. under siege uh, from various peoples. But what's, I think, been very interesting in the last few years, and again, you have echoes of this through history, is that if you look at the language of people like Viktor Orban in Hungary, or even Trump, when he gave a famous speech in Warsaw in 2017, the term they often use to defend wall construction is not so much the nation state, but the idea of civilization. 
and they'll talk about European civilization, they'll talk about Christian civilization, and more and more people are talking about the idea of white civilization. For example, the um, terrorist killing in New Zealand, uh, if you look at his Facebook manifesto, was done in the name of preserving white civilization. People that were uh, agitating in Charlottesville, uh, Virginia, part of the kind of uh, neo-KKK activity there, or in a sense uh, fighting, as they said, for the purification of the white race and defending white civilization. So, you know, civilization itself has become a very racialized term, defending an idea of racial identity. Wall construction, certainly in the estimation of people like Viktor Orban in Hungary, mm -hmm. has been done in the name of a of, of broader ideological causes way beyond the nation state that somehow this is a defense of Europe against the unwanted refugees from uh, Syria and Libya. So that particular idea of a, of a kind of European and racialized identity has been a very, very important uh, justification for wall construction. So it's not just about the defense of the nation state. And certainly in this country, Nigel Farage was, in a sense, uh, making similar arguments about the need to keep foreigners out. It wasn't just the idea of a kind of uh, British identity, it was something much larger in uh, defending an idea of a kind of uh, Christian West and Britain then become one of the kind of frontline stories in that. So that seems to be kind of an important kind of variation in recent years, this idea of a kind of broader transnational story of a kind of civilizational identity under threat. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's really well put. And I, you can see that clearly, as you say, in, in, you know, in the Brexit discussions, both in terms of, on the one hand, from the sort of leave or the more kind of right-wing understandings of Brexit, you know, in some ways, borders were, were understood to guard against civilians rather than other states. Of course, in the most obvious way, with the refugee crisis, guarding against an influx of something that might threaten European civilization that was coming from elsewhere. But also, even from the sort of kind of left, some of the sort of that got quite quickly obscured left-wing arguments about leaving the EU, you know, this discussion of actually something does need to be done to change the EU because it's become sort of fortress Europe. The idea of, yes, we've got open borders within Europe, but actually maybe that only serves to bolster a, a, a kind of firmer European border that very much situates things either within or without European civilization. So I suppose, as you mentioned there, that's kind of an interesting way of certainly the, the, the kind of constructions in, in, in terms of rhetoric of these walls is far beyond purely the nation state, which does lead us nicely into the next thing I wanted to kind of ask you about, about precisely this, the sort of language of border construction. And I've come across this 2019 chapter on the language of borders by um, Victor Conrad. And he argues that border words are universal because people from time immemorial, as we've discussed, have imagined difference beyond familiar and proximate spaces and places and their inhabitants in terms of showing how borders are not just that they're constructed um, and they're fluid depending on who's talking about the border and whether it's local, regional, if it's personal, if it's national. Um, and the way in which we talk about borders really betrays what we're imagining we're defending or protecting. And that actually some of those shifts kind of historically, you can see that the shifting language maps onto in some ways the, the birth of the sort of modern nation state uh, and the separation of the concept of the state from the person of the ruler. So instead of marking the boundaries of the lands in possession of a particular ruler, you know, in the sort of English estates kind of style, borders gradually become understood as these more territorial frames of the state uh, in the sense of an organized system 
of administrations, but you can see through history the way in which our language around borders is changing. And I suppose that brings up two kind of questions that I'd quite address. One is how you think maybe the language of borders has shifted from, from you know, through the 20th century, through your sort of period. Uh, and also to ask, I suppose, more broadly about the idea of borders as presenting binaries, because of course now we have a whole almost kind of field of study and um, border studies, which instead of thinking about borders as separating two binaries, discusses border lands or border areas as kind of dynamic spaces in themselves. So places of exchange, of interaction, uh, of specific characteristics, rather than just the meeting of two very separate things. So yeah, two things there, something about the kind of how the language has shifted through the 20th century, and then thinking about this idea of borders as binary uh, in how we talk about them. Uh, good questions. I mean, this, I want to return to something you said at the very beginning, which is the idea of Fortress Europe. And that's a term from the Second World War, generally associated with the Nazi regime, but not only. It was also used by uh, Western propagandists. But it was the idea that there's something larger at stake than just the defense of one particular nation state. And a good model of that is the kind of Schengen Agreement, which is the idea about dissolving internal borders uh, with the idea of the kind of uh, free traffic of people and goods, but that came from the very beginning with an idea of the removal of internal national borders within Western Europe would mean we, uh, the kind of beefed up strengthening of borders outside of the Schengen zone. So in a sense, it was one about removal of internal boundaries and then the, um, the fortification of external ones. So those, in a sense, went hand in hand, which is still the case. I think it's a, it's a kind of a nice metaphor for how certain people kind of understand that. But I think you're right about border construction has shifted over the century. Again, I mean, like, like I said, the Cold War had a particular ideological investment with this idea of the West standing for free trade, free movement, dismantling of borders and walls in the name of kind of liberal economic and political life. And the East supposedly standing for its opposite, which, you know, again, is a caricature and not completely true. But it and you're also right about that now we're in a situation which is a whole kind of cottage industry of um, borderland studies. And there's been a huge amount of interest in that in my particular field in German history about towns and villages that essentially um, mushroom around the Berlin Wall on both sides in terms of how they grow to uh, adjust and adapt to these kind of the violence of a kind of political border running through their towns or rivers or, or what had been kind of shared landscapes. And for something like the origins of the European economic community, there were, it's often been said it's no accident the people that were driving that story, people like Conrad Adenauer and Dale Hassidi and, and Jean Monnet, those are all European statesmen who had come from border regions, areas that had been exchanged between the French and the Germans, so that they understood the kind of violence of uh, border or annexation, changing borders, and so that was in a sense part of their political commitment to peace and a kind of story of shared sovereignty because they had grown up in contested borderland areas. So in a sense, that becomes a particular model to try to draw a line under the kind of, uh, the kind of imperial or national racist militaristic designs from the Second World War and try to come up with something new. So I think in that way, the EU was seen from the very beginning as a as very important economic and political experiment in a kind of post-state shared sovereign model. I mean, we know in a sense what happened to that, but it's still this idea of trying to imagine a transnational federal unit in a world where the nation state is still the foundation of international 
political life. So it still has a kind of particular place in that story. But in terms of, let's say, something like the interwar story, I and mean, again, at the Versailles Treaty, the redrawing of the maps of Europe, like new borders, you know, again, very difficult, contentious ones in which certain states like Romania were, and Hungary were radically reduced in size, others were enlarged, and the kind of willful arbitrariness of those map making in Versailles 1919 is then set in train a range of problems, but at least the overarching idea was that the, the recipe for political peace was in a sense kind of mono-ethnic demographic constitution, which will then lead to a more political peace. The background, of course, was the uh, assassination of Archduke uh, mm-hmm. Franz Ferdinand in the eve of the Second War in terms of they had, they had an assuaged Serbian nationalism. So the idea of trying to come up with a different model of borders, new nation states, uh, in a sense, against the backdrop of uh, dissolved empires, both the Habsburg and the Ottoman Empire, was an effort to try to bring borders and new nation states into the 20th century with the idea that these were these were modern political units that will lead to a more peaceful and better world than what they had. Of course, a lot of scholarship in recent years has shown that the nation state was, uh, as a unit was often more uh, violent, more racist than it had been under imperial rule, which where these empires were from the very beginning kind of multi-ethnic, huge kind of uh, protean complexes. So the actual, the nation state in that way was not a recipe for political peace, but very much its opposite. But it still brought with us a kind of new architecture of Europe and the world in terms of redesigning the maps of Central Europe. And of course, that also had effects on the Middle East, a kind of new Iraq, Iran, a kind of new map of the Middle East to, in the spirit of these construction of new nation states. So it's been a, a lot of new map making over the course of the 20th century, and it's caused a great deal of, uh, of problems, problems and bloodshed, of course. So it's uh, one in which some of the causes have changed, though we're not living in a world in which there's a lot more fence construction, but there has been a lot of new territorial exchanges in, in the way they had been earlier decades. It's now, in a sense, seems to be one in, in which uh, countries are fortifying their existing borders and not so much questioning the legitimacy of the borders themselves. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose that's a good jumping off point in a sense to, to go from, which I think as your work has done in different ways you've thought about worlds, to go from this kind of um, thinking about remaking maps, shifting national borders, to then kind of zoom in perhaps now to think a little bit about how those bigger processes and how we understand uh, how identities, political, national, ethnic, how they're shaped by borders, but also how those, the ideas of kind of, uh, of walls um, affect us on a more kind of day-to-day level or, or the way in which we think about walls in a very localised sense. So in your, in your book, which we talked about briefly at the beginning, Within Walls, about private life in the GDR, you argue that despite um, the East German regime's infamous surveillance techniques, so the Stasi, the, the, the state security force, um, and this idea of the full penetration of the state into the private sphere, uh, you argue that the private sphere was in fact a cherished arena of individuality, alternative identity formation, and potential dissent. So that's kind of interesting, that's an interesting point of comparison to think about in, the, in your book where you're thinking about the private sphere under an authoritarian communist regime, how, how then might you characterize the private sphere or, or the assault on privacy engineered by this kind of new liberal authoritarianism? We might refer to our current age of walls moment and how that might 
signal a, a particular kind of assault on the private sphere? Uh, that's a good question. And I forgot to mention before you talked about the Tim Russell book, which I, I like very much and I found it very, very useful. And it's real, but that's really a story about the construction of physical political borders mm. and political walls. And I think what you're suggesting is there are lots of ways of thinking about wall construction. And one way to think about that is the issue of digital walls. And now we're living in a world in which there are you know, assaults on our private sphere and our private life. And you're right, I certainly had worked on that, thinking about uh, East Germany's particular test case, one in which the regime was very keen not to appear like its predecessor, meaning Nazi Germany, in terms of at rhetorically allowing people the, the semblance of a private sphere, which often meant after work and on the weekends, a kind of world of peace and quiet that the state then respected. The citizens then used it in their petitions and then their language to say that, you know, deserve that as part of the social contract with the state. Now, of course, we're aware that the state was bearing down on people, but it became a funny story in which both citizens and the state knew that, that there was no pure private sphere that existed, but both sides had a stake in maintaining it rhetorically as a way of trying to gain certain political favors. And that I found quite interesting in terms of, of how citizens and state are kind of negotiating this idea of a private sphere, because both of them had a vested interest in at least claiming that it did exist. Now, we now live in a world in which what you were suggesting is a kind of liberal version of the assault on the private sphere, one in which what we're seeing now with kind of dismantling of digital walls. What I find interesting is this particular moment in which, as the Tim Marshall and others have argued, it's a kind of feverish construction of political walls. It's going then in tandem with a world in which we're dissolving the digital walls around private life. So for some, that's seen as a kind of expansion of state power. You think of, let's say, China's surveillance of its population. But of course, you know, the Edward Snowden case made very clear that the U.S. government's also trawling its citizens and also uh, blurring the line between public and private, between state and citizen as well. So in that way, China and the U.S. are both doing so in the name of, of seeking out enemy subversives within their midst. So that's the expansion of state powers, one of them. But that maybe more interestingly is, in a sense, the commercial Interest. And this is where we're kind of moving into the world of Facebook, uh, what now people are calling surveillance capitalism, the way data, our private data, then is gathered and sold to advertisers or to others for commercial or political influence. So the kind of commercial assault, which is in many ways uh, more insidious, I think the Stasi would have been very, very jealous of the kind of reach of uh, what Mark Zuckerberg, for example, in his operation has been able to accomplish without all that much political resistance, I must say. The other third thing would be the issue of outside interference. You know, the fact that um, you have a situation in which, you know, you have outside countries like some of these Russian operatives, stories like Cambridge Analytica, the way they're then using data mining, the assault on people's private lives, their political preferences, the shopping preferences to gather data, and then to influence elections. So all these things, I think, are then the kind of assault on what people used to talk about as their private life. It raises all these questions about, you know, how private is private life or what is it exactly we're fighting for? I think it's in a sense become a very important civil rights issue. It's not to the point it's brought people on the streets in the same way, let's say, the killing of George Floyd has, but it's, it's a very, very important transformation of 21st century 
political life internationally. And then the question is, you know, what does this mean? We live in a world of the, of the kind of fortification of physical walls, but then the total dismantling of the walls around our home, our communities, in many ways around ourself in terms of our kind of clickbait. That's a very interesting pairing. And I don't think we as historians, as sociolo sociologists, as political observers have really in a sense grappled with what is that particular combination? In what way then do you question or resist political power? On what front do you in a sense take issue with this? So I think that's still kind of a wide open question, but it's, it's one in which I think the meaning of walls and wall construction has moved in a very, very different ways. And I think we're going to have to think about all the kind of variations of uh, what is going on. I like the way you, you, you kind of put the two things together, the bolstering of physical walls and then this more insidious way in which our personal or private walls are sort of breached sometimes without us knowing it. And I think what's also interesting about that is that particularly, as you mentioned, kind of Facebook or different types of global companies that, that have you know, incredible access beyond our sort of private walls. It's sold to us as a, as a kind of liberation from walls, right? As like, you know, this is connectivity. This is about breaking down barriers. But in fact, perhaps then it's the construction of more invisible or, or the, the, the breaking down of certain barriers in terms of our kind of private ones. But actually it creates new, perhaps more invisible lines of, of, by which distinctions are drawn. It's a really, as you say, something that is very much still to be fully understood, I think, particularly, as you say, in how it works in conjunction with more kind of traditional physical worlds or the kind of political boundaries that we might recognize more immediately uh, and where these sort of globalized corporate entities sit within that um, and where the walls are going up and where they're coming down. I think there's, there's, you know, it's not always easy to see which one is kind of happening, I suppose. I mean, and maybe that brings us quite nicely in a way to sort of start rounding off our discussion by thinking, you know, as, as we've just started to do about our kind of immediate moment. And I think in the hyper immediate, we're in a very particular new age of, of pandemic induced barrier construction. Um, of course, for the past months and for the next year or more, we're set to be even more divided by physical borders than ever. You know, international travel is limited, national borders are closed, uh, visa applications are backlogged, um, and many of our everyday small interactions are now happening across perspex borders and protective barriers, face masks in, in the most kind of basic sense. But of course, these borders also create, as ever, the space of dialogue and interaction global movements, as, as you just mentioned, the, the recent Black Lives Matter protests have shown, again, that sort of physical borders can be easily transcended and we can create global action. And they've you know, found ways to create and sustain social movements and civil rights struggles across physical boundaries. But as you say, that throws up a whole new set of questions about our sort of digital boundaries and our kind of personal walls and privacy. So uh, to kind of uh, bring all that together, the final question I sort of want to ask you is, I suppose, about the future of walls and where 2020 might feature in our history of walls and borders thus far and how might borders fare uh, in the decade to come? I think that's a really good question. And we're going to be grappling this, I think, for quite a long time. I mean, you're right about the kind of coupling of COVID-19 and then the global civil rights movement around Black Lives Matter. And it's one in which, as a colleague was telling me recently, in a sense, I can't breathe, is the, is the phrase that actually links them both. It's about, you know, about the physical ailment associated with the virus and then, of course, uh, the George Floyd shocking story. So that's it. But it is one in which now we, 
phones. We all are trying to get used to living in a world of masks and social distancing. Some of it's coercive, some of it's voluntary, Re, you know, reduce travel, reduce physical contact, a kind of world world that's being driven by the state, but also being driven by communities, commercial interests, personal choice. Uh, as you say, though, it's also brought new kind of virtual communities. I mean, this kind of conversation we're having on Zoom. I mean, uh, lots of us are doing this kind of thing in a way that we did not uh, just a few months ago. So it has brought people together in different ways. And with something like the Black Lives Matter, the action still has been in the street. The street is a kind of, what do you want to call it, a kind of 18th, 19th century uh, site of political agitation is still the preferred model of, uh, or maybe the best model for political transformation. It's visible, it's collective, and things change. Now, again, what you're talking about, the kind of dismantling of digital walls, it's very different. It's difficult to name, as a result, uh, difficult to name, identify, and as a result, difficult to challenge. Uh, and that has made those issues then a much more difficult um, civil rights issue, at least in terms of mobilizing people, uh, in a sense, understanding what in fact is actually going on. So the ones that can be better visible and can be filmed, I mean, again, where would we be without, you know, the George Floyd story if uh, that video hadn't been taken? It's in the sense that kind of visual archive of, uh, of police brutality and inequality, which is in its drivenness. So that, in a sense, is it's an older model of protest, still very effective, and now it's, in a sense, become a massive transnational movement justifiably as people are thinking harder about their, not just stories of, of police brutality, but also, you know, issues of curriculum and the way uh, people are rethinking ideas of national identity and national history, all I think things to the good. And I do hope these things will have uh, a real durability, but it, we do live in a, in a world in which there's a lot of wall construction and a lot of wall dismantling all happening at the same time. I guess my final point is to say, if we think of the liberal order or liberalism itself is based on a very firm distinction between public and private, I mean, even something like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights 1948 actually has the, the defense and maintenance of the private sphere as one of those human rights issues. Mm. Now we're living in a world in which these things are challenged. They're ones in which they've been breached. So I think what's going to have to happen is we're going to have to start adjusting our vocabulary. I think we're living in a very post-liberal world in which the old categories of public and private, maybe even a citizen, state, and society. This is an old vocabulary, essentially from the 18th and 19th century, which has had a lot of political conceptual purchase for the 20th and 21st century. But it may be time to rethink just how relevant and valid some of that vocabulary is, because I think we're going to have to use a different vocabulary describing what we're seeing, the transformation of political communities around wall construction or about the dismantling of walls. And I think that's gonna to have to be the task of um, 21st century uh, historians, sociologists and observers to try to make sense of what in fact is going on because uh, it seems to be one in which it's a whole set of, of variables, but actually studying or looking at walls, I think it's a good lens through which to understand some of these larger political changes. Brilliant, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Paul Betts. It's been fascinating to talk to you about this and you've raised a lot of excellent questions and ways in which older ways of thinking about walls and borders are being brought into the 21st century and this still kind of awkward transition out of sort of post-89 moment uh, and, and where we are now. And here in 2020, I think, um, as you rightly say, the pandemic is also affecting how we're thinking about walls, both personal and political. So I look forward to more of your work on this, I hope, in the future. 
And thank you very much again for taking part in the History Workshop podcast. Many thanks to Laura Forster for conducting this interview and to Paul Betts for agreeing to take part in the conversation. His book, Within Walls, Private Life in the German Democratic Republic, is published by Oxford University Press. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.